0: The America's National Parks Podcast is brought to you by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean is a proud partner of the National Park Foundation. L.L. Bean and NPF share a belief that every community should have the opportunity and resources to experience the joy of the outdoors together. Through this partnership, they're not only helping people find their parks, they're helping protect, restore, and improve parks across the U.S. If it's outside, L.L. Bean is all in. Be an outsider with L.L. Bean. In the heart of our nation lies a riverway that has been federally protected for more than 50 years and stewarded by Native Americans for thousands before that. It carried logs piled so high they caused jams two miles long. It witnessed the first steamboats, a Minnesota firestorm, and even a briefly booming pearl button factory. The onset of fur trade, European settlement, and urban development began to threaten these once pristine waters. The unique habitat for aquatic life and recreational opportunities such as fishing and paddling was enough cause for people to rally for the water's protection. I'm Jason Epperson, and this week on America's National Parks, the St. Croix National Scenic Riverway. The St. Croix National Scenic Riverway is made up of the St. Croix and the Namakagan Rivers, totaling 252 miles of clean water, The St. Croix is a half mile wide and acts as the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin. More than half a million visitors a year visit the two rivers, which are also home to seven state parks and multiple state forests along their banks. The St. Croix Riverway was historically home to the Ojibwe and Dakota tribes who depended on the River Valley for life. They were semi-nomadic, moving from camp to camp, searching for food. The River Valley provided constant resources for clothing, homes, and tools that help people hunt or fish. Spring meant maple sugar camps. Women organized efforts to tap maple trees, gather sap, and boil the liquid into sugar, while most of the men trapped and hunted waterfowl. In the summer, people gathered in fish camps near the confluence of the St. Croix and the Mississippi. Buffalo roamed on the hills and prairies west of the river, and resources were plentiful. Wild rice was harvested in the fall, so the Dakota returned to the northern lakes and gathered in ricing camps. The family units separated into smaller units in the winter when hunting for white-tailed deer and elk was scarce. Some tribes still have land within the watershed today. By the early 19th century, the fur trade was starting to boom in the St. Croix Valley. The Northwest and the XY were two rival fur trading companies that sent traders to build wintering posts in the valley in 1804. John Sayre set up a post along the Snake River for the Northwest Company, and Michael Currit of the XY Company built a trading post on the Yellow River, which are both tributaries of the St. Croix. For several months, these men competed for animal pelts like beaver, muskrat, mink, and otter from the local Chupue people. Shortly after fur trading, the logging industry boomed. The St. Croix and the Namakagan Rivers carried logs from the mid-1800s until 1912, when the trees worth logging were gone. Lumberjacks sawed trees in the winter months and stacked them along the shoreline until the ice thaw in the spring. When the rivers opened up, the lumberjacks dumped the logs into the river to flow down to the sawmills in Stillwater, Minnesota. In one section of the river, a sharp bend would cause the logs to pile up and cause a jam. One year, the jam stretched for two miles. Tourists stood on top of the logs in the river for photos, tiptoeing across the stacks. Ropes, steam engines, and dynamite were finally able to break apart the jam. A dam was built north of the St. Croix Falls in 1890, which helped prevent log jams by limiting the number of logs that could go through. Townspeople along the St. Croix celebrated every spring as the first steamboat signified the end of an isolated winter. Dark smoke billowed on the horizon and teachers closed school early so everyone could gather at the levee to watch. The first steamboat to make the journey up the St. Croix River was the Palmyra in 1838. Boats with paddle wheels could carry large amounts of cargo in shallow water. A 200-ton steamboat only sat 18 inches deep in the water. Every year, hundreds of steamboats traveled up the river, though they couldn't travel past St. Croix Falls due to the rapids. Because of the river's depth, people used ferries and boats to cross. A ferry consisted of a raft with cables that connected the two shores. Operators could carry animals, wagons, cars, and people across the river, but the platforms were slow and couldn't hold very much at a time. Before long, construction began on a more efficient way to cross the river. The first bridge was built between the St. Croix Falls and Taylor's Falls in 1856. A wooden bridge connecting two cities was built in 1876, It cost money to walk across, five cents if you were walking, 15 cents for a horse and carriage, and 25 for a pair of horses. This wooden bridge burned in 1904 and was replaced by another until 1931 when the state of Minnesota built the current metal bridge, which is now on the National Register of Historic Places, recognized because of its age and the special moving pieces of the bridge that can raise and lower to allow boats to pass underneath. Railroads came to the St. Croix Valley in 1870, and roads were built. Today, we don't need riverboats to travel up it, but there are still boats that travel on the river for fun. In 1894, not far from the St. Croix River, a black man named John Wesley Blair was working on the limited number four train from St. Paul to Duluth. He lived with his wife, Emma, and two young boys in St. Paul. But one day on the railroad, John Blair became a hero with the story. Here's Abigail Trabuy.
1: The railroad tracks passed through a town called Hinkley, halfway from Duluth to St. Paul. The town boomed with logging in the area and had a sawmill, hotels, restaurants, and 1,000 residents. As a porter for the St. Paul and Duluth railway company, John's job would have likely included cleaning the train cars and carrying baggage for passengers. Being a porter would have offered steady income, but porters were often mistreated, underpaid, and overworked. On September 1st, 1894, the train departed Duluth just before two o'clock in the afternoon. Blair worked to make the passengers comfortable as the train headed south toward an increasingly dark sky. No one aboard the train knew that two forest fires had started further south near the town of Hinckley, Dry summer weather, large-scale logging, blowing winds, and low humidity created the perfect conditions to start two small fires near town. The area was simultaneously experiencing a temperature inversion, with a blanket of cooler air trapping the warmer air underneath. As the two fires merged, the blaze punched a hole through the cool air— Hot air rushed upward and cool air came down to take its place, which fanned the flames. This rushing air created a firestorm. On the train, Blair passed around wet towels to help passengers breathe in the smoke. As the locomotive rolled closer to Hinkley, it eventually came to a stop near a crowd of 150 people. Everyone surrounded the train begging for help, having just escaped the fire in town. Blair and the train's crew helped the locals board the train as they told the crew that the bridge and station and Hinkley burned to the ground. Blair was the first person aboard the train to mention Skunk Lake, a nearby body of water. It was really more of a shallow swamp, but the engineer reversed the locomotive five miles even as the flame began to engulf the train and windows imploded. Finally, the train reached the lake and the train's crew helped passengers lower themselves into the lake. Blair continued to go back to the train to rescue children and was the last to leave the locomotive after everyone was off. The crew and passengers stayed in the lake until the fire lost its power. A relief crew arrived from Duluth early the next morning with a hand car to rescue the passengers. The Great Hinkley Fire is still one of Minnesota's worst natural disasters, burning hundreds of square miles in a matter of hours. The official death toll was 418 people, which doesn't include the hundreds of Native Americans who lived in and around the town. If you walk on the land where the fire roared, you can still dig into the soil and find a fire line of ash in the earth about a foot underground, marking a deadly force we will not soon forget.
0: The St. Croix and the Namakagan rivers create a haven for 100 native fish species, 18 species of amphibians, and more than 50 mammals. Prairie and forests converge, and the rivers and streams produce rich riparian zones along the banks for animals and plants. Below the water surface, small animals latch onto the river bottom and stay in one place, surviving the winter freeze-up and spring thaw year after year. These invertebrates have survived water quality changes that come with logging and dredging and were harvested for shirt buttons. Meet the mussels. Here's Abigail again.
1: Commonly called clams, mussels are invertebrates that lack a spine and produce a hard, two part external shell instead of an internal skeleton. They filter through gallons of water each day and eat algae and bacteria in the water through their gills. This also improves water quality in the river. The St. Croix and Namakagan rivers host diverse habitats for mussels underwater. Boulder fields, gravel beds, sandbars, and murky backwaters. Because of this, there are 40 species of mussels that call these rivers home with names like pig toe, pistol grip, sheep nose, heel splitter, and elephant ear. The entire continent of Europe is only home to 16 different species. Most freshwater mussel species live on the gills or fins of a fish for up to three months until their internal organs have developed. Then the juvenile falls off, and if they land in an acceptable spot on the river bottom, they will grow into adults. Some species of mussels live for 80 years or more. In 1916, Richard and Walter Kaiser saw economic opportunity in the St. Croix mussels and founded the St. Croix Pearl Button Company. The company harvested local mussels and cut them into buttons for expensive shirts and dresses. The size of the shell would determine the size of the button, or what article of clothing it could be used for. 24 cutting machines grew to 40 as the industry grew. Workers could earn up to $20 a week. It is not known what happened to the button company, but after three years it no longer appeared in local directories. The Kaiser brothers either went out of business or sold to another company. But regardless, the pearl button boom along the St. Croix was yet another obstacle the mussel species survived.
0: Researchers believe that all mussel species that were around during European settlement still live in the river, which is amazing given the massive impact that logging, dam building, and dredging boat channels has had on the riverbed and water quality over time. It's illegal to take any live mussels for shell from the rivers. It's also illegal to move a mussel because if you place them back upside down in the sand, they can suffocate. As more reservoirs were created in the 19th and 20th centuries, America began to realize the need for rivers without large dams. At the same time, pollution was degrading water quality at an alarming rate. The Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught fire 13 times in 100 years before the 1960s due to its highly polluted state. In 1965, the Secretaries of Agriculture and Interior recommended that certain rivers be protected from damming if they had excellent outdoor recreation potential. As plans for a power plant and a 30-mile-long reservoir were brewing in the St. Croix River Valley, supporters of the river rushed to protect it. Congressman Alvin Okonski of Wisconsin defended the St. Croix and stated, Our precious heritage of natural and unspoiled beauty and unpopulated streams, once exhausted and destroyed, can never be replaced. We have a golden opportunity to save the few remaining scenic and wild rivers as part of our nation's heritage for this and coming generations. Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson, who would create Earth Day, also advocated for the protection of the St. Croix and the Namacagan Rivers, even paddling with the Secretary of the Interior to show him why the rivers were so special. The Wild and Scenic Rivers Act became law in 1968 thanks to strong support from river enthusiasts across the nation. The law declared that stretches of river could be protected to preserve their wild, scenic, and and or recreational attributes. Today, the act protects over 12,000 miles of rivers nationwide. The natural, pristine water quality of the St. Croix and Namakagan rivers was an important factor when the riverway was designated a wild and scenic river, and later a national park. Expanding urban development, water and air pollution, climate change, and non-native species like zebra mussels and invasive carp are all impacting the riverway today. Increased nutrients such as phosphorus can cause blooms of blue-green algae, which suck oxygen out of the water and harm native aquatic life. Community collaboration throughout the watershed is necessary to protect the Riverway. The St. Croix Basin Water Resources Planning Team is a partnership between the National Park Service, the Minnesota and Wisconsin Departments of Natural Resources, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, and other local organizations. Wisconsin and Minnesota have agreed to work to reduce phosphorus in the St. Croix River Basin, and long-term trends show that the levels are decreasing. Further collaboration and teamwork will be necessary in the future to ensure that the St. Croix National Scenic Riverway continues to be a thriving aquatic ecosystem. We can all take action to protect the clean water near our own homes, support efforts by the National Park Service and state and local resource agencies, To reduce nutrient inputs into rivers and lakes. Try using fewer fertilizers and favor low to no phosphorus products if they are absolutely necessary. Septic systems should be monitored every two or three years and emptied regularly to avoid releasing nutrients into local water. Don't use soaps and detergents that contain phosphates and work to eliminate salt use for de-icing winter roads and sidewalks finally, encourage native landscaping around backyard ponds and waterways that will help filter nutrient runoff before it gets back to our water. Every small action can have a collectively large impact on keeping our water resources clean. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, narrated by Abigail Trebu and written by Lindsay Taylor. Special thanks to Emily Martell for providing research about the River Valley she calls home. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-story view. Wherever you listen to podcasts, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the See America Podcast. And if you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. Today's show was sponsored by LL Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.